Welcome to Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey, brought to you by the Antitrust Section of the New York State Bar Association. Undercurrents Unveiled takes you on a four-episode journey through the investigation, prosecution and defense, and follow-on litigation surrounding the high-profile cartel by the lawyers involved. Now, prepare to be entertained while gaining valuable insights into the legal battles that unfolded beneath the surface of this remarkable case. Welcome to episode one of Undercurrents Unveiled. My name is Juan Artiaga, and I'll be the host for today's episode, Cracking the Case, Unraveling the Marine Hose Conspiracy. During this episode, we'll shed some light on the intricacies of this antitrust conspiracy as told by some of the attorneys who investigated and ultimately prosecuted the case. We'll also explore the application of the DOJ Antitrust Division's leniency program, as well as the challenges of cross-border coordination among enforcers in cases such as the Marine Hose Cartel. With me today are Portia Bamaduro, Craig Lee, and John Jacobs, all of whom are former DOJ prosecutors who played a leading role in investigating and prosecuting the Marine Hose Cartel. Portia is currently an advisor to Amazon's general counsel. Craig is a partner at Paul Hastings. John is a partner at Perkins Coie, and I'm a partner at Crowley Mooring. Um, so with those intros, I'd like to jump into, um, let's just start from the beginning. And Portia, I'll turn to you. Uh, when, when people think about cartels, they usually think about drug cartels. So for those who aren't familiar with antitrust cartels, can you just explain what an antitrust cartel is? Sure. Good morning, Juan. It's good to be with you. It's true that most people don't necessarily connect uh, cartel activity with antitrust defenses, um, but it happens all the time all over the world um, when a group of companies or entities come together and agree to fix prices, rig bids, or allocate markets or limit production. Now, with that baseline set, what was the uh, Marine Hose Cartel? So the Marine Hose Cartel was a group of um, about a half dozen international marine hose manufacturers who conspired to rig bids and fix prices and allocate market shares um, for the sale of marine hose, which is a rubber hose used to load or unload oil between tankers and storage facilities. And it was a pretty sophisticated operation um, where the corporate executives from the, the participants, along with a handsomely paid consultant, um, agreed in advance who would submit winning bids on marine hose contracts. And those conspirators took turns uh, submitting the lowest bids while the others agreed to submit higher bids or bids that had special terms that wouldn't be acceptable uh, to the buyer. And they also agreed not to compete against each other in certain geographic areas. How long had this cartel been in place before law enforcement officials became aware of it? So the Marine Hose Cartel existed for a number of decades, um, and a number of participants took a break for some period of time before they resumed their activity in approximately the late 1990s. And um, 
it was uncovered in approximately 2006 when one of the member companies came forward to provide information to authorities, which prompted a long-running investigation by the DOJ and a number of international enforcement agencies, which ended with a number of prosecutions and convictions. So so they were conspiring for a couple of decades before anyone learned about this. That's, That's pretty amazing. How were they able to fly under the radar for so long? I mean, others might have different views, but I think one of the reasons that stands out to me why this cartel activity was able to go undetected for so long was the cartel's ability to create uh, the illusion of apparent competition in the market. Um, there were a number of competitors in the space. They were all bidding um, on various marine hose projects with work being dispersed among all of them at various points in time. So nothing out of the ordinary was apparent to enforcers. One of the things I think was effective in keeping the secret was that they used code names rather than the company names. They used alphanumeric um code names for in their communications and they also this was back in the time when fax machines were prevalent and so they would use uh, faxes and later on when email became more uh, prominent they would use um, third-party email like the non-company emails to communicate so they did they took a lot of pains to keep it um, a secret so what once DOJ became aware of the marine hold cartel what, what investigative methods did DOJ employ to start building its case Well, as Portia mentioned, we did have a cooperator here. One of the two um, Japanese manufacturers of marine hose was a leniency applicant and is often is often the case with leniency applicants. Um, They provide a lot of information, you know, make witnesses available for interviews, produce a lot of documents. And so we got great insight into how this conspiracy, which um, many participants called it the Marine Hose Club. <laughs> so that was kind of what they they called themselves. And Portia uh, already kind of gave the overview of, of how this worked, um, mentioned the handsomely paid consultant that uh, his name was Peter Whittle. There's no secret uh, about that. And how it would logistically work is that every time one of these companies would get a request for a bid, a request for a proposal, they would forward that to Whittle. And Whittle would then determine uh, who was going to win that job or who should win that job. And the winner was designated, uh, the term he used was the champion. So if you were going to win the job, you were the champion. And then he would instruct by email or, as Craig said, by fax. That's really going back a number of years. Um, how everyone should bid so that the champion was the lowest bidder. And he determined who should be the champion based on the market shares they had all agreed to earlier. So I've always viewed this at its heart as a market share allocation conspiracy. The companies decided where they wanted to be in terms of market share and Whittle was hired to make sure uh, that they were there and the emails and the, the faxes made it very explicit what was going on. So, you know, the leniency applicant provided us a lot of help. The other thing that we did, um, which uh, was also not a secret because it was played at the later trial of two of the defendants, is um, we did surveillance and we taped the last meeting of the Marine Hose Club. Uh, And for that, we had FBI and Defense Criminal Investigative Service assistance 
Um, so how that worked was every year in the spring, there's a large trade association meeting in Houston for all kinds of companies involved in any respect in the business of offshore oil drilling. And, and this trade association was not the cartel. It's a legitimate trade association. But one of the businesses involved in that larger industry were these manufacturers of marine hose. And so they would typically attend this meeting every year. And as a part of that conference in 2007, a side meeting uh, at a different location in Houston, at a different hotel to try to uh, avoid detection, was held and members of uh, the Marine Host Club met. We knew about this. We knew who planned to attend. We knew where the meeting was. And the FBI wired up the conference room where the meeting took place. And we also had two adjacent rooms for this meeting. So Peter Whittle and several of the, the representatives from the companies were in the large conference room. What they didn't know is that right next door was the FBI running the taping equipment and listening in. And then in the, the hotel room next to that sat me and Craig and Portia and several other members of our staff. And we were watching it as well. Uh, we watched and listened to the whole meeting and we sat, uh, very quietly. I remember we had very strict orders. Do not make any sounds. You know, do not turn on the water faucet. Do not flush the toilets. Uh, you know, we had very strict uh, rules because we wanted to avoid detection, uh, which we ultimately did after a couple of potential uh, hiccups. I remember Portia and Craig, weren't, wasn't there like a celebrity out front of the ho in front of the hotel and a lot of people were gathering. Do you remember Jesse that? Jesse Jackson was in Jesse the Jesse Jackson was there. And so I think there were a lot of people and maybe even a police car out front as a part of that. And we were worried that the participants were going to get spooked seeing law enforcement or just a lot of people and not go into the hotel. But they did. Okay. And so they started filtering into this conference room. And uh, the other kind of nervous thing that happened was one of the very first things that one of the participants said before the official meeting started was, well, uh, guys, should we check for any listening devices? Oh, my God. I just froze, you know, and we all kind of held our breath. And the FBI was probably doing the same. But uh, in the room itself, other members kind of laughed. They started getting snacks, which had been provided there. Um so we overcame that. The meeting uh, started. We taped it and uh, everything you know, went as planned. So we were able to get several incriminating statements on tape. Um, I should mention in terms of investigative techniques, we were able to tape this uh, meeting a couple of ways. One, there were a couple of executives from the cooperating company in the room. So any uh, conversations they were a part of were considered consensual monitoring. But we also applied for beforehand and, and got Title III wiretap authority, which allowed us to tape the entire meeting and any side conversations that um, these executives, the, the cooperators, may not have been a part of. And I think that was the first use of a Title III wiretap in an antitrust investigation. So we had a number of different investigative techniques that we used. Yeah, if, if I remember right, John, I think that the uh, uh, the leniency applicants, they actually left the room for a smoke break or for a break. 
in, in order to see if there's any conversations that took place without them that we could record with a Title III. Right. And we were worried that there were going to be breakouts. You know, maybe two of the executives would go off in a corner and we'd be able to see them and be able to hear them. But if the cooperators weren't there, would we be able to record that? And that's why we got the Title III wiretap. Did anyone's mouth drop as you guys were watching and listening what was going on? Yes, I remember very clearly sitting watching this and looking over at Mark Rossman, who I understand may be a a, a participant on uh, another episode of this. He was, I think, typing on something called his BlackBerry, I think, at the time. Remember, this was May 2007, uh, to our section chief back in Washington, and uh, you know, it was a fairly explicit meeting. It provided a lot of good evidence for us because the Marine Host Club had gone through some tough times and Whittle was giving an overview of some of the history and saying, we've got to get back together. Are we all in this? And I remember they all essentially affirmed, yes, we're willing to continue this. And that, you know, really provided us some great evidence. So there's probably probably a lot that stands out about this cartel com- when compared to others, but are there is there anything in particular about this cartel that really stood out, John, when you think about all the cases you prosecuted at DOJ? Well, I would say the tape and our ability to arrest a large number of executives and obtain early guilty pleas as a result of that meeting. Um, and the second thing is, uh, we've already touched on this, the explicit nature of the conduct. I mean, there was no doubt when you looked at the documents that this was a per se unlawful bid rigging conspiracy, a market allocation conspiracy. I don't think I've seen another conspiracy that hired a full-time coordinator, someone whose only job was to make sure the jobs were allocated the right way. So the, you know, uh, as Craig said they used alphanumeric code names. I have seen code names in other um, cartels, but these guys clearly knew what they were doing was unlawful, and they did their best to avoid detection. But in the end, um, they weren't they weren't successful in in avoiding detection. Let me let me turn to you, and I'd like to fast forward to trial now, um, and. Uh, at trial, DOJ was able to convict all but two of the individuals who did not uh, agree to a plea deal. Was there anything unique about the case against those two individuals that you think caused the jury to acquit them? Sure. Thanks, Juan. I think there are several things. So one is that when I think look back at this case, the, the number of guilty pleas was pretty high, but it's also the speed at which people pled guilty or the speed at which people agreed to plead guilty. So the day after we did um, the re- record the meetings, we then went into um, the hotel rooms with agents and several individuals were arrested and confronted the next day, shown the video, shown photos of the meeting. And a lot of the people just confessed right away. And the people who didn't confess that day um, a few days, a few weeks later, they did confess. So we were able to have a lot of people plead guilty, accept responsibility and cooperate very early on. So the two people who went to trial were the, were the two holdouts, but there are also two people who were, um, when you look at the hierarchy of people within the companies, there were lower level individuals and they were also less involved in the conspiracy. And I think that was a huge factor in the acquittal at trial. Because we had a lot of evidence of 
all this guilty conduct and um, a lot of people admitting to participating in the Marine Host Cartel who had served long sentences, three years, two years, and they were um, basically explaining their role, showing all these documents. And then you have the two defendants who are much lower level. And the, the dynamic was you had higher level people pointing the finger down at these two lower level people. And I think that was a huge factor in the jury's eyes is like, why are these people, their relative culpability is so much less compared to the other people who have pled guilty and were the government witnesses. I think the second thing was at the time, this was 2007, 2008, 2009, the economy was just going uh, crazy at that time in a bad way. And I think that had a big effect, especially when you look at the um, the cartel, who the victims were. You know, the, the victims were, some of the victims included the big oil companies, um, international oil companies. And it's hard for a jury to be sympathetic to an oil company being a victim of conspiracy when gas prices are through the roof, when the economy is just doing so poorly. But I think the the third factor which led to the acquittal was our reliance and our being at the time DOJ's reliance on the tape. I think we we thought that was such good evidence, and it was, but I think we just kind of almost fell in love with the tape and used it a lot throughout the trial, when in the end, the one of the defendants wasn't even on the tape. And the other defendant, he had maybe said one or two lines during the whole meeting. And so our focus on the tape made it seem like these are the guys who are most culpable, and whereas the defendants themselves weren't as much involved in the tape. I think those are the reasons that led to the, the ultimate acquittal. Were there uh, any strategies that DOJ employed at trial that you thought were particularly, particularly effective? Well, I think we had a plethora of witnesses who were involved in the cartel who admitted to an agreement, and we had strong documents that showed that it was an agreement. I mean, there was no question that there was a Marine host conspiracy. There's no question that there was a per se agreement. Um, and so I think that was a really strong piece of, piece of evidence for our case, because it, in the jury's mind, like those first two elements uh, that are required for conviction are already done. I know it's hard sometimes to go back and second guess yourselves, um, but was there anything that the team did that you, you guys thought should have been done differently or maybe not done at all? Well, I, I think what, what I talked about was like the really strong parts of our case, that the great documentary evidence and all these people um, who confessed to the agreement. I think that also may have been part of our downfall because it made it seem like this Marine host conspiracy was so big and so prevalent, and these guys were so small compared to the other people. I know sometimes it's hard to give your adversaries uh, props, but uh, do, was there anything that the defense team did that, that you guys thought was particularly effective? I think having uh, them take the stand. Like, I think normally um, that's a big risk, but um, especially um, one of the individuals who did not speak uh, very much English, and he was a, a, a pretty young guy. I think he was very charismatic and he came off very sympathetic. And I think the juries found him like very likable. And had he not taken the stand, I don't see how that message would have been conveyed. For people who might not be familiar with, uh, with it, can you describe the DOJ's leniency program and explain why DOJ has this program? Sure. Uh, without getting 
too deep into the program's specifics. The DOJ's antitrust division offers individual leniency and corporate leniency. And at a very high level, uh, leniency allows individuals or corporations who come forward and report their involvement in cartel activity uh, and cooperate in the division's investigation, the opportunity to avoid criminal conviction or fines on prison sentences if they meet specific criteria of the program. Um, and the DOJ was the first to adopt a formal leniency program. I believe it was in the early 1990s. Um, and early, uh, excuse me, other jurisdictions have, have soon followed with their own leniency programs. And essentially, the leniency program allows enforcers to disrupt and detect uh, cartels by encouraging the participants to come forward and self-report. Um, and it provides a huge incentive uh, for those to come forward because they can stand to benefit greatly um, by doing that. Um, and those benefits vary by different jurisdictions, but I think um, the department has found it to be a really effective tool in their investigation of cartel activity, which is the reason why they, they have it and the reason why it continues today. You mentioned early on that that there were other jurisdictions who were investigating the Marine Hose Cartel. Did those jurisdictions also have leniency programs at that time? Yeah, yeah, some of them did. And I can't speak to the specifics of those programs, but I believe uh, the European Commission, uh, the Australian Competition Commission, uh, the Japan Fair Trade Commission, Korea's Fair Trade Commission, and also uh, the UK's Office of Fair Trading all had leniency programs at the time of the Marine Hose investigation. Right, let me turn to you and, and, and maybe you can get into some specifics about the leniency programs. Do you recall if there were any key differences between DOJ's leniency program and the ones that the other jurisdictions had that played a, an important role in the case? One of the key differences that really um, impacted the investigation was that I think at the time, it may still be um, in the EU, in order to obtain leniency, you have to stop the conduct. You have to um, end the conspiracy, withdraw from the conspiracy. Whereas we wanted at DOJ, we want to continue to be involved, like let the conspiracy continue so we can gather evidence through covert means, including the recording of the meeting. And so having... Um, and, and, and there's no there's no requirement to stop the conduct. It just report it. And so having the um, the two different um, interests there was very complicated in order to allow tell the EU, hold on, just hold off a little bit so we can get to this meeting, so we can get this great evidence. And so we can all like come forward at the same time. So were there any uh, meetings between you and, and the foreign enforcers on, in terms of how to implement each each other's uh, leniency requirements? There were, I think there were coordinated calls if monthly, if not more frequently. I just remember it being so difficult to find a time to call with Asia, Europe, and Australia, and the US, um, just to find one time zone that worked. But yes, there were um, regular communications to coordinate among the different agencies. So last year, DOJ revised its leniency guidelines, and one of the changes that they announced uh, requires that a leniency applicant promptly self-report any illegal activity in order to qualify for leniency. 
And in making this change, the DOJ's leadership team said that, a, quote, a company that discovered discovers it committed a crime and then sits on its hands hoping it goes unnoticed does not serve deserve leniency, close quote. Um, do you think that this change will make the leniency program more or less effective? Well, I think time will tell, but I, I'm afraid that uh, with this added requirement of prompt reporting, that this may actually deter leniency applications. And what I mean by that is, I think one of the main things that has made the leniency program for DOJ so successful is its transparency and the objective standards that DOJ has applied to figure out who qualifies. So on this timing issue, you know, before you just had to be the first to report, and that's a very objective standard. Now there's more of a subjective race against the clock. Um, when you look at the DOJ's FAQs, they have these very helpful, frequently asked questions on their website um, that provide more information about the program and different aspects of it, including this one. When you look at this one about prompt reporting, they say, well, it's going to be a very fact-intensive inquiry, and the applicant has the burden of proving that they promptly reported that's a very subjective standard, and I think it could deter applications. Oftentimes, companies want to conduct an internal investigation before they self-report because they want to make sure they understand whether they did cross the line, and if so, make sure that they're providing full and complete information when they're speaking to DOJ. How do you think that's going to play a role in this prompt reporting requirement? They've made it very clear that you have time to conduct your own internal investigation. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, the question of whether you were sufficiently prompt once you detected the violation in coming in, you know, maybe you initially saw some information that you didn't think suggested criminal uh, cartel activity. You waited for more. Uh, and then conducted, you know, a more extensive internal investigation once you found that additional evidence. How is the DOJ going to, to view that? Um, it's, it's unclear. I also think there's going to be a question about privilege. Um, a lot of the um, information that DOJ may want to know about when you learned about it and how, whether it was prompt, they may be privileged communications. And so the company has to decide what to, what to waive, if anything, in order to, to fulfill their leniency obligations. Are there other changes that, that you guys think might uh, take place as a result of this updated guidance? Well, another one that stood out for me when it came out was the, the treatment of current executives of what are called type B applicants. So there's uh, two types of leniency. Type A is when you go in and you self-report and the DOJ has not heard anything about this uh, conspiratorial activity. Type B is when you go in and there is no leniency applicant yet. They haven't issued a marker, but they have received some evidence uh, of criminal uh, conduct you know, going on, whatever that is. So if you're a type B applicant, the question here is, will your current executives be covered by the leniency letter? Your company will get leniency if you meet all the requirements. What about your current executives? Will they be immune from charges? You can imagine that's a pretty important question 
because it's a big deterrent to go in and apply if you think your current executives may not be covered. Um, before the, these changes last year, the standard was the division often chooses to protect such executives unless they're later found to be, quote unquote, highly culpable. So that's somewhat subjective. But now I think the new standard is, is even more so. It's a more stringent test. Now the division says we're going to assess this on a case-by-case -case basis. And in general, we're going to give those current executives leniency only if their cooperation appears to be necessary. And, and it may depend on whether the application is made before or after subpoenas have been issued. But you know, it, it's clear that it's a more stringent test and I think it could deter type B applications. Have they explained why they thought this change was necessary? No, but typically the FAQs are revised after there's been a situation where DOJ feels like someone had gamed the system or that they had taken advantage of the, um, the leniency policy as it was in place. So I would not be surprised if something happened that prompted them to make this change. I'm going to ask the three of you to put your DOJ hats back on for a second. Um, I know that might be hard at this point, um, but just wanted to get your thoughts on why, whether while you were at DOJ, were there certain types of strategies or techniques that defense counsel employed uh, when they were coming in on behalf of a company or an individual seeking leniency that you guys thought were particularly effective? Thanks. Um, I think it was just the early cooperation, especially in this case. I remember when uh, leniency applicant came in, they had a bundle of documents all ready to go saying, these are the key documents we found. This is how you can make your case. This is uh, who the players are. These are the job, the, the projects. These are what the codes mean. And just having that first meeting just be so effective in knowing that the company had done their research, had done their investigation, and they were able to kind of package it up for us. It made a big difference and like we realized like this is going to be a big case i think that was really important to kind of set the tone was that a way of like establishing credibility between defense counsel and, and doj absolutely absolutely i think that made a big difference. and and that spilled over to the other companies that ended up cooperating who weren't eligible for leniency but the companies that came in early on did the same thing and and i think that benefited them on the back end when it came to uh sentencing yeah, I'll just echo that point. I mean, that was what I was thinking when you asked that question, Juan. Um, you could definitely tell the difference between defense counsel, who had really taken the time to conduct a pretty thorough investigation before they came in um, and sort of tied it all up in a nice bow. Not that everything was um, put in a package for you, but they had really done their homework and they were willing and um, open to continuing down the road of, of um, cooperation with the Department of Justice. Um, you could tell the difference between those defense counsel and some who were just coming in and trying to poke around for information to see what we were going to tell them. Um, and so the ones who came in and who were willing to put their cards on the table and say, this is what we know, this is what we're willing to tell you, we're in this for the long haul. Um, I always found that very impressive and, and extremely helpful in moving the ball forward in our investigation. And, and to build off that, I think a, a lot of that was possible because at the time there was a lot of trust 
between the defense bar and the antitrust division. Um, and so the, uh, um, the, when the defense counsel came in, they didn't know necessarily exactly how the case would be resolved or what would happen. But I think they trusted us that we would treat them correctly, that as long as they were transparent with us, we'd be transparent with them. And that allowed the early and um, prolific cooperation because of that trust. So Craig and John, let me ask you a question. Now that both of you are, are partners in, at firms in private practice, what, what factors do you consider when deciding whether to advise a client to seek leniency? And John, I'll turn it to you first. Yeah, I think uh, the initial thing you have to do is assess the evidence to figure out if what you've uncovered is really criminal conduct. Because, yes, the costs are very high if you don't apply and somebody else does, but there are also very high costs for applying both in the United States and depending on the scope of your business, potentially several international jurisdictions. So you have to make sure there's reliable evidence of a price fixing or a bid rigging market allocation conspiracy. Uh, I know in one case, since uh, joining private practice, I actually advised a client not to apply because we didn't believe the single email we had un uncovered really signaled criminal conduct you know, based on who the author was, based on the content of the email and other things we knew about the market. Now, if you do have reliable evidence, then you have to start assessing whether the conduct has occurred in the past five years. You have to start weighing the costs and benefits of, of going in. Yeah, I, I agree with all that that John said. I think in addition to um, trying to assess what jurisdictions you need to report in. We also need to, it's inevitable now to, you have to consider the civil cases and we need, you need to make sure the client is prepared that even if you resolve or when you resolve the criminal case through leniency, you still have to deal with a long tail of the civil cases and just to make sure the client understands that. And also I think it, it's, there's also the balance you need to consider. Well, what's the risk of detection here? Because if you don't report it and it doesn't get detected, then, um, then the company's better off than had they gone in for leniency. Obviously, that's tough to, to predict with certainty, but I think that based on our experience, we can kind of guide the clients and make a recommendation on that respect. Let me turn to another topic, uh, which is international cooperation and Dawn raids. Um, and Craig, you, you meant, as has been mentioned earlier, the Marine Hose Cartel was investigated and prosecuted in multiple jurisdictions. As part of these parallel investigations, enforcers in the U.S., Europe, and Asia conducted coordinated dawn raids. Were there any challenges in coordinating these dawn raids across three continents? Yeah, it was, it was massive challenges. Because number one is that the bulk of the evidence was going to be in Asia and Europe because that's where the, mainly the companies were. And a lot of the, the bigger companies were in Asia and Europe. And so we knew that they had the best ability to get the documentary evidence. But our unique situation where we had everyone come to Houston, everyone was in Houston for the meeting, and then we were going to record the meeting and arrest them. That was, I think that was able to, we were use that to say, like, let U.S. take the lead this time. Because, and hold off on doing your dawn raids, hold off on doing your searches and interviews until at least the next morning when we can go in with the arrests, because we don't want anyone to be tipped off. And so there was a lot of negotiations with the international agencies because 6 a.m. in Houston, what, middle of the day in Europe and in the evening in, in Japan. 
And so we had to get a lot of, um, like you get a lot of favors from them to hold off so they could coordinate all the um, searches and arrests at the same time. So we had arrests and searches in Houston. We had search warrants in other parts of the United States. We had Don raids in Asia and they had um, the, the Don raid equivalents in Europe all going on at the same time on the same day, just so that no one was get tipped off and we can get the best evidence we could. Yeah. And I think the key to that negotiating the time zones depends on what you said, Craig, you know, where is the bulk of the evidence? I was involved in a dawn raid five years after a Marine hose. It was, I think, September 2012, where the bulk of the evidence was in Japan. But we didn't have a cartel meeting in the United States like we had in, in Marine hose. Uh, we had some executives we were interviewing in the U.S., but we let, you know, whereas in Marine hose, where everyone let us go first, uh, in this later uh, investigation, we let Japan go first. And it was interesting because as we dropped in on some um, Japanese executives who were traveling here in the in the United States, they said, I've already gotten a call from headquarters. Uh, I know about this investigation and I'm ready to cooperate and tell you the truth. <laughs> so that company that instructed their their uh, executives who were traveling in the U.S. Uh, got a, you know, a cooperation bump as a result of that. And Craig, how, how did the DOJ go about organizing and conducting its dawn raids? Well, it was a, a massive effort by with law enforcement. I mean, we had FBI, DCIS. We also had local Houston PD to have uh, enough law enforcement. I think we, it was probably close to 100 law enforcement personnel in order to um, execute the search warrants and do the arrests. So it was a, a, like a cross-agency a lot of coordination, and fortunately, everyone like made this a high priority, and were able to pull it off. Yeah, because there were a lot of people to interview, even people who weren't in that room uh, for the last cartel meeting. I'm gonna open up this question to three, the three of you, and, and Portia, I'll start with you. Um, can can you guys share uh, any stories uh, related to the Don raid that you participated in in Marino? Yeah, um, I'll start and I'll just say I remember the night before getting very, very little sleep. Um, we were all up very, very late um, coordinating and making sure that the logistics were ready to go for the next morning. Um, and there was just a lot of uh, the energy was very high among the team. And I remember we went out, at least I went out with a colleague that morning and it was pitch black because we were going out pretty early. We were driving through Houston to our first stop um, and we arrived at the hotel and the first executive uh, that we were going to speak to came to the door and obviously, I mean, it might have been six o'clock in the morning. It was, they were stunned um, to see us. We were the last person that they expected to see. And we started the conversation by showing a still shot that was taken during the meeting. And it had all of the executives seated around the table. And um, that definitely caught this individual by surprise. And he promptly asked for a lawyer. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, and then we went on to the next individual um, who was also quite surprised to see us. And this individual wanted to talk a little bit to try and explain his way out of it. 
Um, and I think once he realized, once he looked again at that picture and sort of saw himself seated at the table, he also decided uh, he was going to ask for a lawyer. Um, and so I was just struck by the fact that both of these individuals who were foreign nationals who'd never lived in the United States knew that they could ask for a lawyer um, immediately and they, that would stop the conversation. Um, but I will just say I'd been at the division for a total of, I guess, eight years or so. And that was probably the most memorable day um, in my tenure there. It was It was quite an eventful day. It's not every day that you get to see a live cartel meeting happen the day before and you're seated in the next room. And then the next day you get to go out with FBI and try and um, conduct some interviews um, as they're being arrested. I, I actually have the exact opposite experience where um, I, I came, went to someone's hotel room and immediately I showed them the, the still that Porsche was talking about, the picture. I started playing the video and he's like, don't, don't play it anymore. I confess, I'm involved and just just went on and just talked for an over an hour. And I just remember sitting there going like, this is such great information. But it was also like we had a series of pri we had priorities of who we we're going to talk to. And once we talked to someone that we are supposed to move on to someone else. And I remember thinking like, now I can't move on to my next person, but I can't leave this person who just gave me all this information. And it was just uh, it was just incredible to kind of see someone just spill all this information so early in the morning. Um, and and just like ha like just better than I could possibly imagine the kind of evidence that was coming out. I remember how much sleep I got. I remember getting exactly one hour of sleep uh, because you're right, Portia. That night before, after we uh, taped the meeting, was extremely busy uh, getting ready for the next day. And the next day was very early. I think we knocked on those hotel doors five thirty. 6 a.m. maybe at the latest because some of these executives were from Europe and we thought maybe they'll be up already. Um, I, my job was to interview two executives employed by the French company, Trelleborg. Um, one of these guys, both of them were in the room uh, during the meeting. One of them had said at the end of the meeting after the business was, was done, well, guys, shall we leave one by one? You know, making a joke that maybe competitors should not be seen together which was obviously unnecessary given that we had just taped the entire meeting. Um, so, uh, you know, both of these guys we had arrest warrants for, so it worked a little differently, I think, in my case. Uh, I remember the FBI going in first, going into the room first, reading their rights first in French and then in English. They were arrested, handcuffed, the room was searched, their laptops, the search of the laptops started. Um, this is before smartphones, so I don't think they had those. Uh, I, I then came in and started interviewing them, and I had the same thing that uh, that Portia and Craig have mentioned: the still shot from a, from the meeting, a photograph, and, and I also had a clip from the video. And it was an interesting contrast between my two witnesses. Neither one asked for a lawyer. Um, the first one resisted and tried to deny. And like Craig's witness kind of went on and on, but he wasn't confessing. He was, he was denying. And I warned him that lying to an FBI agent, you know, could also be a very serious crime. And eventually knowing that the second one was waiting, I sort of cut it short. Um, and the demeanor of the second witness was very different. He was very submissive, very apologetic. He didn't, I would, he, he wasn't, 
giving me a full confession, but it was clear that he knew what he had done was wrong and that we had the evidence sufficient to convict him and his company. But despite the fact that the two took different approaches, their cases ended the same way. They immediately got very good, very experienced uh, criminal antitrust counsel. Uh, both of them cooperated immediately, and they were eventually sentenced to 14 months in prison, each of them. Uh, they only served a small part of that sentence, I think a handful of months here in the United States before they applied through the uh, prison transfer program to be sent back to France, where we later learned they ended up being released well before their sentences were complete. Well, I'd like to uh, conclude this session by asking each of you two questions. What do you remember the most about the Marine Hold cartel case? And secondly, why do you think people are still talking about this case? Well, I'm not sure about the second question, but I will say I'll agree with Portia that, uh, you know, the highlight for, for me and one of the highlights in my 27 years at the division uh, was, you know, taping and observing the cartel meeting, uh, the preparation for that and sitting through that. And then the dawn raid and the initial appearances of the defendants the next day, you know, because I saw at the beginning of that, these very successful, very confident international businessmen walk into that meeting, walk into that hotel conference room and by the end of the next day, you know, when they were brought into a magistrate's courtroom, um, they were very different people. Yeah, I mean, I think what stands out to me the most, certainly the video, um, being able to catch a live cartel meeting in process, but also during that conversation, I think someone alluded to it earlier, at the beginning of that meeting, um, Peter Whittle, the coordinator, literally laid out a recitation of the history of the cartel, which was more than anybody could have asked for. I mean, it was quite remarkable how he walked through, um, how we've been through this together for so long and we've done X, Y, and Z. And I really want to hear from everyone that we are still on board. I mean, when that happened, I think my mouth dropped open. Um, you just don't get that kind of evidence in a case hardly ever. Um, and to be sitting right next to it while it's happening, knowing that it's being recorded um, is pretty remarkable to me. Um, and like John, I'm, I'm not sure why um, we're still talking about it to this day. I mean, it could be um, the extraordinary nature of um, the fact that we got it on tape, which also doesn't happen very often. Um, it's just sort of one of those once in a lifetime cases for the division that I think still sparks a lot of interest for folks in the bar today. For me, this case was interesting because although I was at the division for 13 years, this was one of the few cases where I was on from the very beginning all the way through investigation, through trial, and then years later um, through an extradition, which was the first extradition for an antitrust offense. And so just being able to be there during all, every single stage of that this case was just incredible from a professional development perspective. As far as why people are still talking about today, I think this case had so many firsts. The first Title III, the first use of the pr prisoner transfer, the first um, uh, case by the uh, UK Office of Fair Trading. I mean, there was, we didn't get into this, but there was a deal brokered where two, three people agreed to plead guilty in the United States and then immediately got on a plane and were flown to London under custody, and then they pled guilty in the UK. 
And that was their first um, conviction there, the first extradition. So a lot of uh, historic antitrust cartel firsts were involved in this case. I think that's why it's still being discussed now. You mentioned Peter Whittle a number of times and referred to him as the coordinator. What ended up happening with him in, in the case? Because I'm sure some of our audience might be wondering. I think he ended up go, um, being sentenced for three years. Um, he did his time in the UK. He was one of the people who were transferred to the UK. He had to come back and he testified for several days. Um, so, and he was, that was when he was still in custody. So he had to fly back through in custody to the United States and then, um, testify while being held in a prison. Thank you to the three of you for, uh, this very interesting conversation. It's, it's been riveting. This concludes episode one of Undercurrents Unveiled. We invite you to join us for our next episode, Accountability on the Dock, Courtroom Drama and Verdict, to hear firsthand accounts of the dramatic proceedings and legal battles surrounding the Marine Hose prosecution and defense. We invite you to join us as we discuss the case's twists and turns, delve into discovery-related issues, and the pursuit of individual accountability and experience the climactic moments of the court case as told by the lawyers at the table. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey. It is produced and shared by the NYSBA's Antitrust Law Section. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent their employer or other organizations. If you liked what you heard or would like to become a member of the NYSBA, please check out what the antitrust section has to offer at nysba.org slash committees slash antitrust dash law dash section.